Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 84, Other Gospels and Alien Gods, Marcion of Sinope. Marcion of Sinope is our third member of the Unholy Trinity of ancient heretical teachers. It kicked off with Basilides, then we covered Valentinus, and now we have finally reached Marcion. All three were second century Christian teachers with large followings, and all three attracted the attention of Irenaeus of Lyon, the father figure of heresiological writing. Okay, Justin Martyr was really the the father of this genre, but as we've seen, Justin was in many ways a broad-minded and philosophical Christian. But Irenaeus was already starting to spit fire, sparking off a tradition of writing which became more venomous as time went on and was distinctly anti-philosophical. And as history would have it, once you detracted the attention of Irenaeus, you were doomed to be condemned as a heretic. But only in retrospect, Before we approach Marcion, let's once again emphasize that in the second century, Christians were not even remotely organized under a banner of orthodoxy down with the heretics. And since our sources for our unholy trinity are primarily heresiological, we have to be very critical and endeavor not to absorb the prejudices of the writers who present their doctrines. We've seen, even with Valentinus, and we have quite a bit of text which can legitimately be called Valentinian, even if we don't have much of Valentinus himself, we've seen how hard it is to get at what the actual thinker was up to. And with Marcion, we are sadly back in Basilides' territory. We know he was influential, we know he had some very interesting ideas, but we don't really have anything he wrote himself. And Marcion is especially interesting because he wrote the Bible. What do we mean by that provocative statement? We'll get to that in a moment. First of all, though, let's just settle into the second century and discuss the few fragments of knowledge we have about this guy's biography for purposes of orientation. So, with the usual caveat that everything we know about Marcion comes from hostile sources, let's begin. Marcion was from Sinope in Paphlagonia on the northern Black Sea coast of modern Turkey. He lived from around 85 CE to around 160. This makes him really quite an early Christian, if you think about it. People will have been alive in his day who had met the Apostle Paul himself. Not that Marcion met the Apostle Paul, except in his exegetical work, but this is just to give an idea of the chronology. Um, This is among the first generations of Christians. In the 130s, he came to Rome. Now, he's already a Christian at this point, And in fact, there's evidence that he came from a Christian family, so he was probably raised a Christian. And in Rome, he became seemingly very prominent in the Christian community there, a bit like Valentinus did. Maybe Marcion's prominence came partly from the large amounts of money he splashed around. He must have been from a wealthy background, because we have stories that he made a big donation to the church in Rome when he arrived. The stories also tell us that when he was excommunicated in the year 144, and this probably did happen, he asked for the money back. (laughs) Be that as it may, he then went back to Asia Minor and set up shop as a teacher, founding a movement which scholars and heresiologists call the Marcionites or the Marcionite Church, but which we can say with a lot of probability they probably called themselves 
Christians. They might have even called themselves Orthodox Christians. We don't know. Because most of what they were up to would be suppressed in coming centuries. Now, before we get into Marcion's teachings, let's talk about the Bible. Marcion put together the earliest recorded Christian canon. In other words, the earliest Christian Bible. This is really significant. Out of all the texts in circulation at the time, and we've seen just how diverse these texts could be in previous episodes, Marcion made the decision that these texts and these alone will be, well, the Bible. The canonical Christian scriptures. So what was in Marcion's Bible? It was actually quite a short Bible. There were two sections, the Evangelicon and the Apostolicon. The Evangelicon contained a gospel, the so-called Gospel of Marcion, which was definitely related in some way to the Gospel of Luke that we know and love, but without the infant Jesus material. More on this in a moment. The Apostolicon contained ten Pauline epistles, and that's it. Marcion thought that the twelve apostles of the other gospel accounts were seemingly a bunch of idiots. Only Paul had the true message. So he was super Pauline, and he had a single gospel account. Oh, and there's an important section missing from his Bible, and this is very significant. There's no Old Testament. Marcion did not consider the God of the Jews to be the true highest God, seemingly based on some pretty sound reasoning, which we'll get to. And so the Jewish writings were not even in his canon. Now, talking about Marcion's Evangelicon, we should just say here that having a single gospel kind of boiled down from various gospel accounts in circulation was actually not uncommon in the second century. Plenty of proto-Orthodox churches had a book like this, a kind of Reader's Digest summary of the life of Jesus. So when Marcion's opponents attack him for having a single gospel account, which he edited to suit his own purposes, according to them, we have to bear this in mind. They're exaggerating how unusual this was. Loads of churches had an edited, sort of all the gospels in one gospel account. This was, among other things, a convenient way to iron out all the contradictions in the different gospel accounts which survive in today's Bibles. You can go and find them for yourself. Now, what was the relationship between Marcion's gospel, which unfortunately doesn't survive, though scholars have done quite a bit to reconstruct it, see the recommended reading section to this episode, what is the relationship between Marcion's gospel and the gospel of Luke as we know it? Tertullian says that Marcion, quote, expunged from the gospel of Luke all the things that oppose his view, but retained those things that accord with his opinion, end of quote. The claims in Tertullian, however, are mutually contradictory, and no one really buys this argument. If Marcion had really been selecting texts based on doctrinal criteria, he could have done a much better job of it, because there's a lot in what we know was in Marcion's gospel that doesn't seem directly to support his theology. So this is probably wrong. And to put it in terms familiar from police investigations, we have motive. Tertullian and the rest really want to make Marcion look bad by every means available to them. And so with the motive so obviously there and the evidence not really jiving very well with the story Tertullian tells, we can discount that version. So the genuine story will be one of two main options, both of them very interesting. The first is that the Luke 
that we know from the canonical Bible was made by adding stuff to Marcion's gospel. Now, this is not a popular option among biblical fundamentalists, obviously. It means that the gospel text coming from a heretic is the basis for the gospel text that is now accepted as orthodox by everyone. The other possible option is that Marcion's gospel and Luke's gospel could both be based on a previously existing, now lost source. Plausible, but not based on solid evidence because we don't have the source. This option has some hefty scholarly support, arguing that Marcion's gospel was in fact closer to the lost original, so it was, as it were, the more authentic gospel of the two, if we want to look at it that way. Luke, by contrast, had lots of extra stuff added from some other source or sources. Either way, the heresiologues were bullshitting when they said that Marcion had altered a canonical text and sort of adulterated it for his own purposes. He was clearly working with an account that he found somewhere, and while we can't rule out some form of tampering, which a thinker like Marcion might have plausibly seen as correcting errors that had crept into the text or something like that, since we have reports that he criticized a lot of the Christian writings in circulation saying that they had been tampered with, and let's face it, they had. The text as we reconstruct it does not support the theory that he was sort of concocting a new gospel for his own purposes. The Marcionite gospel was just too messy for that to be the case. If a, an exacting thinker like Marcion were to concoct a gospel, he would concoct a much more unified and indeed Marcionite gospel. As for the Pauline thing, it's interesting. Paul's theology, while it isn't presented as a systematic theology, is in some ways the essential Christian message. And as we saw in episode 64, it's the earliest material we have in the New Testament. And also interestingly, in the case of Marcion, Paul is kind of the least Jewish material in a way. Paul was a Jew, but he seems to have had some kind of conversion experience, the famous road to Damascus. And so whatever the historicity of that story is, we have in the Pauline letters an overt program of saying Christ is specifically not a Jewish thing. He is for all peoples. So he's specifically separating Christianity from Judaism. Now, this fits well with Marcion's views, as Marcion seems to have been, if not exactly an anti-Semite, he's definitely not a Jewish Christian. For him, the God of the Old Testament is real, but he is the Demiurge, the creator God who, and this is why people tend to discuss Marcion in the context of Gnosticism a lot, although he doesn't really fit the definition, followed by Bentley Leighton, Dylan Burns, and others, of Gnosticism being the rather focused group of Christians who had the so-called Gnostic myth of Pleroma, Fall of Sophia, and so forth. So this Demiurge who messed up when creating the cosmos, and who is unaware of the true higher God, who is the God of Marcion's New Testament, the God of Paul, a God of love, mercy, and salvation. So on this note, let's turn to Marcion's teachings, as reported by his enemies. So Marcion gets the treatment from all the greats of the early heresiological tradition, beginning with Justin Martyr. So let's see what Justin has to say about Marcion. And this is cool because Marcion is still alive and preaching when Justin is writing. The translations here and from Irenaeus in a minute are taken from Judith Liu's book on Marcion, which you can find in the bibliography to this episode. Justin describes Marcion as, quote, 
a certain Marcion of Pontus, who is even now teaching those who are persuaded to acknowledge another god greater than the creator, Hodemiurgos. In every race of humanity, through the agency of demons, he has caused many to utter blasphemies and to deny the maker, the poietes, of all as god, and to confess some other to have made greater things than him. End of quote. So Marcion is making a stand. There's two gods, one the creator and another the true highest god. We see that the demiurge is in fact the god of the Jews in the following passage from the same work of Justin. Quote, as I've already said, the wicked demons put forward Marcion, who came from Pontus, who even now teaches people to deny, as God, the maker of everything in heaven and earth, and as his son, the Christ, proclaimed beforehand through the prophets, and announces a certain other alongside God, the creator of all, and similarly, a different son. Many are persuaded by him, as alone understanding the truth, and they mock us, although they have no proof for what they say, but irrationally, like sheep seized by a wolf, they are the prey of atheistic opinions and demons. End of quote. So there you have it. Justin is worried about this trend within Christianity, which denies that the Old and New Testaments can be about the same God. This is something we've seen in all our demiurgic Christians, but in Marcion, it's interesting in that, and this is just my judgment here, Others may see a different set of motivations. But he doesn't seem to have an exotic creation myth or a really strong platonizing metaphysical commitment beyond the fact that he insists that God must be good and so on, which, which everyone insists on in the second century, really. I think he's led to differentiate between two gods, a higher and a lower demiurgic one, based primarily on reading the scriptures. How do you reconcile the God spoken of in the Gospels, who's all about forgiveness, mercy, and love, with the God of the ancient Hebrews, who's always smiting people and is very concerned with strict, legalistic observation of elaborate codes? According to Marcion, you can't. And so you rather elegantly dispose of the problem by simply denying that these two accounts of God are referring to the same God. I think he's starting from scriptural exegesis here. We'll return to this reading of Marcion at the end of this episode. Be all that as it may, this approach to the New and Old Testaments would have serious staying power, and it would be a big problem for orthodoxy. In fact, it's still a big problem for anyone claiming to be a Christian and are trying to argue that the God who demands genocide in the story of Joshua is the same as the God of Paul's letter to the Romans 8.37-39. Quote, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. End of quote. So that is a problem for the Christians to figure out, especially if they include the Gospel of John in their canon, because the Gospel of John is a big love fest. And Marcion didn't even include John in his canon, but he still sees the problem of the god of love and the god of uh, smiting being the same god. This problem didn't go away. Fast-forwarding a century or so to Oregon, writing in the 3rd century, in his philosophic Christian work On First Principles, he starts out by laying down what he takes to be canonical apostolic teaching. 
It includes the proposition that, quoting from Butterworth's translation, quote, The just and good God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, himself gave the law, the prophets, and the gospels. And he is God both of the apostles and also of the Old and New Testaments. End of quote. So clearly in the third century, this point still needs stressing. And if someone is stressing a point, that usually means someone else is out there disagreeing with it. So undoubtedly, there were Marcionites and probably others in the third century still arguing quite the opposite position to Origen's. So there are two gods, a higher transcendent one and a lower demiurgic Jewish one. There's more we can say about Marcion's theology. Let's turn now to Irenaeus against the schools of thought or against heresies. Irenaeus rails against Marcion nearly as much as he does about Valentinus, so we can conclude that, like Valentinus, Marcion's teachings were getting a lot of airplay in Irenaeus's time. We'll give a nice long quote here, and then pull out the relevant points. Irenaeus begins with Marcion's evil lineage through a mysterious teacher named Cerdo, who of course himself descended from Simon Magus, whom Irenaeus makes into the founder of all heresies. Quote, then a certain Cerdo, taking the initiative from Simon and his associates, settled in Rome under Hyginus, who held the office of bishop in ninth place by succession from the apostles. And he taught that the one who is preached as God by the law and prophets was not the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The former is known, the latter not known. The former just, but the latter is good. Succeeding him, Marcion of Pontus developed his teaching, blaspheming without shame the one who was announced as God by the law and prophets, saying that he was the maker of evils and desirous of wars and also inconsistent in precept and self-contradictory. Jesus, however, coming from that Father who is above God, the creator of the world, into Judea in the time of Pontius Pilate, the governor, who was procurator of Tiberius Caesar, was manifest in human form to those who were in Judea. He dissolved the prophets and law and all the works of that God who made the world, whom he also calls Cosmocrator. In addition to this, he mutilates the gospel according to Luke, doing away with everything that is written about the birth of the Lord, and removing much about the teaching of the words of the Lord in which the Lord is described as openly acknowledging the builder of this universe as his own father. So he persuaded his disciples that he himself was more to be trusted than those apostles who handed down the gospel, handing down himself not the gospel, but a piece of gospel. Similarly, he cut away at the letters of Paul, the apostle, removing whatever was explicitly said by the apostle about that God who made the world, that he is father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and whatever the apostle taught, making use of the prophetic announcements of the coming of the Lord. Salvation will only be of those souls who have learned his teaching. While it is impossible for the body, inasmuch as it is taken from the earth, to participate in salvation. In addition to the blasphemy about God, he also adds this, certainly taking on the mouth of the devil and saying everything opposite to the truth. For Cain and those like him, and the inhabitants of Sodom and of Egypt, and those like them, and indeed all the Gentiles who lived in every combination of wickedness, were saved by the Lord when he descended to Hades, and they rushed to him, and he received them into his kingdom. 
Abel, however, and Enoch and Noah and the rest of the righteous and those patriarchs who followed Abraham with all the prophets and those who pleased God did not participate in salvation. So the serpent who was in Marcion proclaimed. Since they were aware, he says, that their God was always testing them and suspecting that he was testing them, they didn't rush to Jesus, nor did they believe his proclamation. And for this reason, he said, their souls remained in Hades. End of quote. So let's pull out a few points to talk about here. Jesus is sent by the Father, who is above the Creator God. As with Valentinus and the Sethians, whom we shall discuss later in the podcast, the Christ figure is kind of an emissary sent from outside the cosmos to redeem us down here and allow us to get back to the Father. He's described as being sent into a world that is alien to him. As often in certain currents of demiurgic Christianity, The true God and his Son are alien, foreign, of another nature to the cosmos in which we live. They're foreigners here. Christ is also sent to abolish the Mosaic Law and all the other works of the Cosmocrator, the ruler of the world, a.k.a. the Demiurge, a.k.a. the Jewish God. Now, this is not that unorthodox. It's just in the details that it becomes unorthodox, because, of course, Orthodox Christians don't see themselves bound by Jewish law, except in a few little kind of transformed ways. And this links up well with the point that only souls experience salvation. There is a very confused doctrinal muddle in Christianity over whether bodies or souls are going to be resurrected. The line in orthodoxy is bodily resurrection, because you find that in much of the New Testament. And they go to various lengths to specify what this is supposed to mean. It's a spiritual body. It's a purified material body, etc. It's a, it's a body made of pneuma. Marcion, along with many, many contemporaries, influenced by centuries of Platonistic thinking about bodies and souls, sees the body as just a corruptible outer covering. This is what the reference to it being made of earth indicates, which the soul will just simply shed upon moving into its saved state. There can be no bodies in the immaterial realm of the true God for Marcion and This whole bodies being resurrected thing really bothered a lot of early Christians. Um, Augustine, much later, found it incredibly difficult to swallow until he finally forced himself to swallow it. We see that Marcion believes in a historical Jesus. He came to Judea in the time of Pontius Pilate and did all this stuff. The whole crucifixion, resurrection story did in fact occur. And there's been some argument over whether Marcion was a docetist. See our episode on Basilides for this particular heresiological term, but Marcion seems not to have been a docetist, or at least not in a straightforward way, anyhow. And talking about the drama of the Passion and Resurrection, Marcion had a particular teaching about the harrowing of hell. The harrowing of hell is the episode, not clearly present in any of the canonical gospels, but considered canonical by all the major orthodox denominations. When the crucified Christ descended to the underworld, and dealt with the souls of all the folk who had died back in the day before being resurrected here on earth. So that answers the question of what he was up to for those three days between his crucifixion and resurrection. This is an important episode in the Christian story, and one of the things it does is allows you to deal with the problem of things like what happens to Moses, whom we as Orthodox Christians consider a good guy and a righteous follower of God, are we supposed to think that he goes to hell simply because he happened to be born before the coming of Christ. No gentle Orthodox listener, Moses is fine because Jesus, having been crucified, went to hell, called Hades in the 
pseudepigraphic texts where the harrowing of hell is related, since Hades is the normal Greek term for the place where dead people go. So he went to Hades, and he sorted everything out. So basically, the dead Moses, we are to assume, kind of converted to Christianity. And same for Abraham and all those other guys. Now, Marcion's take on this story runs counter to the Orthodox account. Jesus goes down to Hades, but the folks from the Old Testament, like Cain, who are normally the ones getting damned for all eternity, they are saved. The ones who are damned are the Jewish prophets, because being accustomed to following the law and the cosmocrator and being used to him playing kind of tricks on them to try to test their faith, they think Jesus' coming is another one of these tricks, and they say, no, 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 we're not going to be tricked by you, Jesus. We follow the true God, the God of the Jews. And they don't run to him when he arrives in Hades, offering salvation. So Marcion is having a dig here at the Jews, for sure, but also at the whole group of Jewish Christians who think some or all aspects of traditional Jewish law are essential for the Christian life and or salvation. For Marcion, the good news is in. The old laws are gone, they're broken, and we are liberated by Christ from all that stuff which was propagated by the Demiurge. Now, there's a lot more in the heresiological record about Marcion, and we could get into all kinds of specific points, but I think we've kind of covered the basics. You can see why he's, in some ways, quite close to orthodoxy, or proto-orthodoxy in his day, but on a few crucial points, he is extremely problematic. Marcion features prominently in the Pseudo-Hippolytus and in Tertullian, who actually wrote an Against Marcion. Tertullian's Against Marcion is both our most detailed account of Marcion's supposed teaching and the most vitriolic in its antipathy to Marcion. So it must be used with caution, but it makes a very good read if you want to check it out. The Pseudo-Hippolytus is interesting, maybe because of what the author does vis-a-vis -vis philosophy. So unlike Irenaeus, who constructs his evil wisdom lineage going all the way back to Simon Magus, the Pseudo-Hippolytus sort of writes the history of heresy onto the history of traditional Greek philosophy. So Valentinus is a disciple of Pythagoras and Plato. Not wrong exactly, but not right either. Basilides is an Aristotelian, and there is some Aristotle and Basilides, as we have seen. And Marcion is a follower of, wait for it, Empedocles. Now, this is nonsense. If it is true that Marcion taught vegetarianism, which he might well have done, a lot of early Christians were vegetarians, including proto-Orthodox Christians, then he shares that in common with Empedocles, because he also taught vegetarianism. But even Tertullian doesn't claim that Marcion taught reincarnation, which was another signature doctrine of Empedocles. In fact, there's really nothing Empedoclean about Marcion, as far as we can tell, if only there were an early Christian movement devoted to the teachings of Empedocles. But moving on, Marcion is one of those thinkers, sometimes called Gnostic, who really doesn't fit the bill, despite his demiurgy. As we saw last episode, even Orthodox Christianity is sort of demiurgic, in a sense, because everything is made through the Logos. And like the Orthodox, we don't have a strong story in Marcion of how the process of creation went wrong. The lower creator god is blind to the existence of the true god. He's limited. And maybe Marcion in some lost works even expanded on this and taught a myth of the fall of some kind 
through the process of creation, but we don't have any surviving evidence of anything like a Sophia myth from Marcion. Indeed, speaking as a non-specialist here, my feeling on reading Marcion, or rather reading about him, is that he is first and foremost a scriptural literalist. He's a man, A, convinced that the right canon of Christian scriptures must contain the truth, B, that this canon is basically the Pauline writings plus an account of Jesus's later life, and C, from these materials, we must conclude that there are two gods, a higher god of love and a lower creator god, propagator of a legalistic, justice-centered religion. The Christian message of salvation is always twofold, right? There is the eschatological salvation, believe in Jesus in the right way, and you can acquire a good fate in the afterlife. But there's always also a social message, a social salvation message. Believe in me and you can join the Christian community, and the Christian community has a different way of life from the normal Greco-Roman society because X, Y, Z. They have these special things they do that make them Christians, and that's kind of a revolutionary social message. In Marcion's case, the X, Y, Z included a total rejection of all that Jewish stuff. Now, Origen, in the 3rd century, wrote a commentary on Paul's long epistle to the Romans, which is a major part of the New Testament, in which Paul comments on the general corruption of society and in which the Jews come in for a beating on a number of specific points. In Origen's commentary, he discusses a bit which treats of circumcision, a very Jewish practice. But was it a Jewish practice in the 2nd or 3rd centuries, or was it also a Christian practice? We don't really know, but we can be pretty sure there were at least some groups of Christians who thought you had to circumcise your baby boys. Now, in the King James Version, the passage reads, For circumcision verily profiteth, if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. So, reading this, the face value of it, Paul is saying circumcision actually is somehow helpful. If you're a law-keeping Jew, or someone who keeps the Jewish law, your circumcision profiteth. It is a good thing. It has some kind of positive spiritual value. But if you break the law, your circumcision is made uncircumcision. It's, it's uh, a kind of mockery, right? You can see why this would be hard for someone like Marcion to buy into. Because for him, circumcision verily profiteth not. It's an old-fashioned Jewish legal thing. And you should just leave your little boy's dingus alone because Jesus has saved us from having to do any kind of dingus-related activities. Origen says that Marcion, who does not use allegorical interpretation, has no way of interpreting this passage. Now, what's going on here? Well, as we shall see when we approach the great Origen, he is a pioneer of Christian allegorical reading, a.k.a. esoteric hermeneutics of scripture. And here... He is, perhaps inadvertently, giving us a clue to Marcion's own methodology. Marcion was a literalist. So, while Marcion shared membership in the unholy trinity of Basilides Valentinus and himself, Basilides and Valentinus were over on one side doing something very esoteric. As we've seen in our previous episodes, they considered that their lineage was transmitted through esoteric oral teachings from the apostles themselves, and you could only really interpret the scriptures and the Christian story through this esoteric oral teaching. They had the key. And the key seems, at least in Valentinus's case, to have been a very mythological creation story sort of key. 
Marcion, on the other hand, seems, or at least this is my reading, to have been a non-esotericist, indeed a biblical literalist of sorts, only he was one who drew conclusions from his literalist reading of the scriptures that were very different from those of proto-orthodoxy. Not an esoteric thinker then, as far as we can tell, but one very instructive to think about when considering the ways in which the discourses of power and orthodoxy were functioning in the second century as the battle lines were being drawn up, and this thing called Christianity was being fashioned. This episode concludes our unholy trinity of early Christian teachers demonized by heresiological tradition as Gnostics and or heretics. Fascinating thinkers who remind us how different things might have been in the West if there had never been an orthodoxy or if there had been a different orthodoxy than the one which ended up triumphing. But maybe these have been peripheral to the central story, Western esotericism. Or have they? I have a feeling, gentle listeners, we shall be meeting with these gentlemen again in the not-too-distant future when we turn to the two, arguably, most central esoteric Christian fathers whose works somehow managed to skate along at the edge of orthodoxy, sailing close enough to the wind that they were never quite rejected even though they ran into a lot of trouble and they were always causing problems. I refer, of course, to Clement and Oregon of Alexandria, two perennial fonts of esoteric Christianity. But, perhaps the Schwepp listeners have had enough middle Platonists and Christians for the moment, and are ready for a palate-cleansing foray into other avenues of second-century esotericism. And all this talk of metaphysics and transcendent immaterial principles makes one yearn for something concrete, something one can sink one's teeth into. Luckily, as it happens, we here at the Schwepp have just the thing. It is time to introduce the A-word. Yes, gentle listener, the time has come to discuss alchemy. The work of the Pseudo-Democritus, the earliest known text of alchemy, was indeed written in the second century Roman Empire, and we shall be discussing it with Matteo Martelli, a man who knows a thing or two about the Pseudo-Democritus since he published the first scholarly edition of the Pseudo-Democritus. But alchemy is so important, so tricky, and so multifaceted that before we dive straight into the earliest known alchemical text, it might be a good idea to give a kind of general bird's eye view introduction to the hermetic art as a whole. And who better to take on that sacred task than Lawrence Principe, a man whose work on the history of alchemy has revolutionized the field, not least because he gets in the lab and tries it out. Join us next time for the place where the history of alchemy meets the practice of alchemy. And in the meantime, stay esoteric. Stay esoteric.